Let's bow in word of prayer, please, as we begin with the word. Father, we thank you that we can gather here like this to worship you. We've had such a fantastic time already worshiping the true and living God. And we've just been reminded again of your faithfulness. And we thank you, Father, for you, because there's none like you. You are the only true and living God, and you've given to us your word, your word that reveals your mind and your heart to us. You've given us your Holy Spirit who illuminates our minds so we can understand the word that he has given to us. As we open it now, then we pray for the illumination of the Spirit of God, and asking, in fact, thanking you for the truth that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which you send it forth tonight. And God's people said, Amen. We want to conclude the service that we began this morning, the message, which was a continuation of the message from last Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles, you turn to 1 Corinthians again, chapter 15. We are now down to verses 42 and 43. This is the area in which Paul is answering the final of four questions in this Tremendous chapter on the resurrection. And the question that he is answering here is, is how will the dead be raised? What kinds of body will they come forth with? And we're looking at these passages now. It talks about the differences and the glory of the bodies. And remember we looked this morning at verse 42. It says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. In other words, what the apostle is saying here is that there are also differences of degree in the kinds of splendor for different bodies. And in this section here, verses 42 to 49, he makes the application to the body of those who die in Christ. To use Paul's figure, who are planted in him. Keep that in mind as your concept when we think about the seed that is sown. The scriptures tell us that we have been planted with Jesus Christ in him. In his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And so now Paul is going to make the application of what he's talking about of God's creation and the difference of glory, and the stars, and so on. Now notice what he says. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. When it is sown, it means it dies. At the present time, our bodies are subject to disease and death. I don't think I need to try to prove that to you. 
When our bodies are placed in the grave, they decompose and they return to dust. And this body that we try to paint up and do all kinds of things to make look so good and everything else is just going to decompose the dust and all the maggots and all the things will eat it up. That's gross, isn't it? That's what he's talking about here. Sown in dishonor. If it's one thing that nobody wants to see is the decaying of a human body. Isn't that right? It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Verse 43. This present body is sown or dies in dishonor. There's nothing very special or glorious about a dead body. Nothing. Somebody has estimated that when we put all of the elements together in the human body with taking in consideration inflation and all of that, the body is probably worth about $1.98. Sown in dishonor. But when this body of the believer who has been planted in Jesus Christ is raised, it'll be raised in glory. Everybody wants to look at then. It will be free from all traces of sin and aging. It is sown, it dies in weakness, Paul says. It is raised in power. With the coming of old age, and I could speak to this, weaknesses increases. It increases. Until death itself grips us of all strength whatsoever. It just gradually drains us of strength and energy and vitality. But in eternity, body will not be subject to these sinful limitations or conditions. These resurrected bodies of ours who will be raised in the likeness of Jesus Christ will be possessed of powers that it does not have at this present time. It is sown in weakness, but it will be raised in glorious power because we have been planted in Jesus Christ and we are going to grow, as it were, into a plant, his body just like his. Marvelous. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, please understand what we're doing here. God is describing for us our future. If you are in Christ, what's going to happen to these bodies? It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. I want you to see how logical and practical and simple Paul is. But he's teaching profound truths very simply. Now I want to emphasize something here. When you look at the word spiritual there. It doesn't mean non-material. When it says it's also be the spiritual. It doesn't mean that it's going to be non-material. You see some folk have the idea that the resurrection. When we are resurrected we will be disembodied spirits 
you know, what we Bahamians call spirits. That's not true. That's not the meaning of this passage. Our resurrected, glorified bodies will be just like that of Jesus Christ when he arose on that first resurrection day. And we know that his body was composed of what? Flesh and bones. I didn't say blood. Flesh and bones. Remember what Jesus said? Luke 24, 39. Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see me have. That's what he says. He still had the wounds of the nails and spear in his body. And he could eat broiled fish and Johnny Gate. I'm glad of that. Now listen carefully. Remember now, Paul is talking about this in context of the impact and significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, sometimes you don't really get this, we don't get the full meaning of this resurrection. The difference between a natural body and a spiritual body is that the natural is designed to live life on earth. Whereas the spiritual body will be designed to live life in glory. Now notice I didn't say heaven. That's true. But to live life in glory. The natural is predominantly soul controlled. Selfishly controlled. Whereas the spiritual will be spirit controlled. When our bodies are resurrected. Our bodies will function under the control and dominance of the spirit that has contact with the spirit of God as was originally intended by God. That contact has been re-established and our spirit will be in control of our bodies. That's why it's a whole new world. It's a whole new world order that has come into being. I mentioned this morning that the tome was not meant to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But rather, it was to demonstrate the new nature of the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't have to wait for the angel to roll away the stone. In fact, when he rolled away the stone, Jesus wasn't there. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let the people in. Jesus was long gone. He could appear and disappear just like that. Why? Because his spirit was in control of his body. Verse 45. So it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. Paul is making an emphasis here, the sequence of the natural and the spiritual. Now again, he refers to the first man, Adam. And again, the first man, Adam, is contrasted with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the last man and the last Adam. When I say the last man, I mean in the sense of the head of a race. 
God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and the scripture says he became a living being, Genesis 2.7. Now all who have descended from Adam bear the characteristics of the man from the earth. That's what the word Adam means. Man from the earth, red clay. The last Adam, Savior, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. The difference is that in the first case, Adam was given physical life. Whereas in the second case, Jesus Christ gives eternal life to those who place faith in him. There's a vast difference between the first Adam and the last Adam and what he gives to the believer in Christ. Now, in verse 46, the apostle sets forth a fundamental law in God's universe. He's still teaching from creation. He says, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and after would the spiritual now we can look at this in several ways first Adam the natural man came first on the stage of human history then Jesus the spiritual man came on the scene or secondly we say that we are born into this world as natural beings then we are born again we become spiritual beings or we could say we first receive natural bodies then in the resurrection we will receive spiritual bodies. All of this is true. But the principle that Paul is emphasizing again and in, and we'll see why in a moment, is that the natural, not the spiritual, is God's universal order. That's how it happens. The natural, then the spiritual. Now Paul continues in verse 47. Notice what he says. The first man of the dust of the earth the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. You see how logical and practical and simple and rational this is? Paul is trying to make a point. The first man was of the earth. He was made of dust. This means that his origin was of the dirt. His characteristics were earthy. That's why they say a male especially, they like dirt, you know. You see, a woman was not made from dirt. She was made from a living flesh. flesh. Man was made from dirt. That's why women are so always focused on cleanliness. You come into the house with dirty shoes, first thing your wife is like, get out of here, boy! Isn't that right? Get that dirt out of here. But you, you don't care. <laughs> Paul is making a point. We're going to go back from where we came from. We came from dirt, from dust, that's, we're going. That's why when we have the committal at a funeral, what do we say? Dust to dust, earth to earth. Some people like to say ashes to ashes. 
which is wrong. You should never be saying that. Man ain't come from no ash. Anyway, all right. Adam was made of the dust of the ground in the first instance. And his life, in a real sense, then was earthbound. But now, the second man, Jesus, where did he come from? He came from heaven. He's a Lord from heaven. And so of these two men mentioned here, especially in verse 45, Jesus is the second, Adam. He existed from all eternity, but as man, he came after Adam. His body came after Adam's. He came from heaven. And everything he did and said was heavenly and spiritual rather than earthly or soulish. But yet he lived in a body that came after Adam. That's the point he's making. And as it was with these two representatives of two distinct classes of human beings, so it is with their followers. Now listen carefully. Those who are born of Adam inherit his characteristics. Likewise, those who are born of Christ are given his heavenly or divine characteristics. And so Paul thinks this is so important, he reiterates it in verse 49. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. As we say, as sure as night follows day, this is going to happen. The spiritual will come after the natural. And so Paul repeats it. As we bore the characteristics of Adam in his sin in a natural birth, so we shall also bear the image of Christ in our resurrection bodies. In other words, we will have the same body as Jesus Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection unto life. We are going to be just like him. Did you hear that? We are going to be just like him. That's why he says in verse 50, and this is important. He said all of that to establish this fact in verse 50. Look at what he says. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? The natural cannot inherit the spiritual. He's said all of that just to say that. To prove this point. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And so Paul is now turning to the subject of transformation. The transformation that takes place in the body of believers, both living and dead, at the time of the Lord's return for his redeemed at the rapture. Paul is now focusing on that moment to prove, to demonstrate that there has to be a change. This earthly cannot in any way enter the spiritual. He goes on. Corruption cannot inherit incorruption. It's incompatible. You cannot live like that. One world citizen who is natural cannot go into another world as a citizen of the spiritual. There's got to be a change. In other words, 
Our present bodies that are subject to disease, decay, and decomposition would not be suited for life in a state where there's no corruption. By the way, that's why Peter preached that first sermon. And he said that it was impossible for death to hold Jesus Christ. Why? Because his body could not see decay. Didn't you see that? It was impossible. Why? Because now that body was infused with life from above. Transformed it into a different body altogether. Now this raises the problem then. If corruption cannot inherit incorruption, if flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, man, a problem comes up. Our bodies, the bodies of believers, no matter how we love Jesus Christ, is not fit to go to heaven. Do you know that? No matter how much you love Jesus Christ, your bodies are not fit for heaven. You know when you go in the restaurant, you see here, sign, no shorts allowed. Another one, I remember the other one says, no hearts, no something, right? Can't get in there. But you can see one big sign in heaven if you get there, no human bodies, no natural bodies. Can't get in. So now what's going to happen? Paul says, I'm glad you asked that question. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, all believers, but we will, all believers, be changed. I love the way Paul moved up to this point. Now, remember, as we said before, a mystery is a truth previously unknown, unrevealed. But now it is revealed by God to the apostles that God made known especially, in a special way, to them and to us. And so Paul now is going to reveal something that was not taught by anybody else up to that point in the history of mankind. Never. No one ever even dreamed of this. He says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, not all believers will experience death. Some will be alive when Jesus comes back. But Paul is saying, whether we have died or we are still alive, we are all going to be changed. Everyone. Now, beloved, listen, because this is wonderful stuff here. The truth of resurrection of the dead itself was not a mystery. That was taught in the Old Testament again and again. But the truth of the resurrection from the dead and the fact that not all will die before they are raised and changed is something that has never been taught before, never known by anyone in the history of the human race. And Paul is revealing it to the believers who have the Spirit of God. Isn't that great? Paul is revealing this mystery. Notice what he says in verse 52. In a moment, I love this, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, 
for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised. How incorruptible. We shall be changed. That's glorious news. That's a mystery. Never known before. Paul says, this change that we've been waiting for, boy, I sure waiting for it. I'm telling this body of mine right now, I believe, I, got, I had a pain in my chest all day, all night. I almost went home just now. But I ain't going to have that no more after the resurrection. Isn't that great? No more. And it's going to be changed in an instant. In fact, quicker than an instant. In the twinkling of an eye. Now, what's the twinkling of an eye? People say the blink. Mm-mm. That's not a twinkling of an eye. The best way it can be described is when the retina of the eye is exposed to light. That's a twinkle. As soon as light hits the eye. That's a twinkle. It's a reaction to light. Now, how quick is that? You see, this is why it's so wonderful. When you think of Jesus Christ coming back to earth, I believe he's going to come in all of his glory. And when that glory hits that body, just like that. (laughs) I mean, just like that. I don't care where you are. I don't care how many pieces your body has been decomposed into. I don't care where it is, how deep it may be in the sea. Wherever it is. Boom. Just like that. The twinkling of an eye. When the glory of Christ hits that body. It's changed instantaneously. Isn't that glorious? At the last trumpet. Now I like that. I think this last trumpet means that's the last trumpet you can hear on earth. Some people like to say this last trumpet means the end of the world. This world will never end. There's no such thing as the end of the world. It's going to be changed, transformed just like we are. But there's no end of this world. The fact this world is going to be our heaven on earth. But this last trump is not the end of the world, nor is it the last trumpet mentioned in the book of Revelation. Some like to say it's the last trumpet in the book of Revelation. That's why they believe people are going to have a second chance to listen to the gospel. But this doesn't refer to that. It refers to the trumpet of God, which will sound when Christ comes in the air for his saints. Now, why you can use a trumpet, I ain't going to know why, dear. I believe it can be a different kind of trumpet than the trumpet we know here. I believe this trumpet can have one of the most beautiful sounds you could ever hear at any time. I believe this is going to be a sweet, melodious sound. This is not going to be one boom, one blast. And I like that, you know, you know, but I don't think it can be like that. I believe that this trumpet and this glory of God is going to hit the body at the same time. In other words, I be- no, not the same time, a little different. Why? Because the body got to change before he hears the sound. And so I believe the brightness of the glory of God is going to change the body and instantaneously the sound is going to be heard and then we're going to be up meeting him in the air just like that. One moment we're there, next one, beam me up, Scotty. This is glorious stuff. 
When the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. What an awesome, fantastic moment this will be, when the earth and the sea will give up the remains of all those who have died. Trust in Christ throughout the centuries. My friends, it's almost impossible for the human mind to take in the magnitude of this event. It's impossible for us to grasp the significance of it. But here's the point of this. Christ's resurrection guarantees that it will happen. Because that's how he was raised. Verse 53, I'll hurry on. For this corruptible must put on incorruption... And this mortal must put on immortality. Now I believe that this refers to two classes of believers who will be present at the time of Christ's return. The living and the dead. In other words, the corruptible refers to those whose bodies have returned to the dust. They will put on incorruption. This mortal, on the other hand, refers to those who are still alive in body but are subject to death. These bodies will put on immortality. Verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, I love this, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass this saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. I like what C.H. Markintosh says about this verse. I quote, What are death, the grave, and decomposition, the presence of such power as this? Talk of being dead four days as a difficulty? Remember about Lazarus? You think four days? Millions that have been moldering in the dust for thousands of years shall spring up in a moment into life, immortality, and eternal glory at the voice of that blessed one when Jesus comes to receive his own. Man, I got the chills. This transformation of the body into that which will be incorruptible and that which is immortal it kills death. That's what it said. This transformation, which will put on incorruption in the body and immortality, it kills death. The moment that happens, death is dead. One could even say, where death abounds, grace does much more abound. Death is swallowed up in the victory of the risen Jesus Christ. Death is swallowed up in the resurrected Christ. Hallelujah! What a Savior. Listen to what Paul says. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? Man, I love this. I, now, this is in the Bible, but I really believe that Paul is saying that as the resurrected glorified saints are transformed and they go up to meet Christ, they can be looking back at the grave and say, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it means. He's going <laughs> to be mocking them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I told you so. <laughs> they mock death as they are translated into the presence of God. Paul uses another illustration to show how Christ's resurrection has declawed the monster death. Look what he says in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. 
Now this is a very important theological truth here. Death will have no sting for anyone if it were not for sin. It is the consciousness of sins unconfessed and unforgiven that makes a person afraid to die. But if we know that our sins are forgiven, we can face death without fear or trepidation. But if, on the other hand, sin is on the conscience, death is a terrible experience. Because we know it's the beginning of eternal punishment. The strength of sin is the law. In other words, it's the law that condemns the sinner. It pronounces the doom of all who have failed to obey God's holy precepts. It has been well said that if there were no sin, there would be no death. And if there were no law, there would be no condemnation. Jesus did away with all of them at his resurrection. Listen to the apostle's word again as he meditates upon this truth. But thanks be to God which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be unto God. We have nothing to fear of death because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the sure prospect that we will be changed, we will be raised to be just like he is. Through faith in Christ, we have victory over death and the grave. Death is robbed of its sting. Now I'm sure many of you know that when certain insects sting a person, they leave their stinger embedded in the person's flesh. They are therefore robbed of their sting. Then they die. Do you know that? They die. In a very real sense, death stung itself to death at the cross of Jesus Christ. And now the king of terror the devil is robbed of his terror as far as the believer in Christ is concerned. Hallelujah! He is risen! What a Savior! And all fear of death should be gone for the believer in Christ. We live in the power of his resurrected power. This is powerful stuff. All of this is doctrine. And now he applies it very practically. Because that's what doctrine is. Doctrine is meant to teach us how to live in a practical way for the glory of God. Verse 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren. See, that's the conclusion. Now, all of what I've said to these Corinthians who are listening to false teaching and living such immoral lives and all that kind of a stuff. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be ye steadfast, unmovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now you know what he's, he's talking about. The reward of the resurrected body. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In other words, in view of the certainty of the resurrection and the fact that faith in Christ is not vain, not empty, not without profit, the Apostle Paul exhorts the believers to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that their labor is not without profit in the Lord. In other words, listen now, the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection changes everything.
It provides hope and steadfastness. It enables us to keep on keeping on for Christ, regardless of the obstacles placed on our way by the world, the flesh, and the devil. No one, nothing, not even the devil, should in any way discourage us from serving the Lord if we really understand what lies ahead of us because of our faithfulness. Transformed body. And so when you allow someone to come and stop you from serving the Lord because you don't like what they wear or what they said to you or this or that, you are denying the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple. You do not appreciate the resurrection if you allowed a little bit of criticism to stop you from serving the Lord. Beloved, that's how the resurrection of Jesus Christ should impact our lives now. If it doesn't, as I said, and we still allow ourselves to be discouraged by the actions of others to the point of taking our hand from the plow of service for him and turning back, then we really don't believe in the resurrection at all. I don't care how much you say you do. But this is one vital fact we must never forget. He's talking about believers and this transformation. Question is, are you rapture ready? I trust that you are. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the hope it gives to us, the sure hope, that we too will be raised and changed just like him. Truly, our Father, this is an incentive for us never to be discouraged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.